0: Let's jump into the message. We've been in this series, this is week number six, where we're looking at this word Christian. And the reason we're looking at the word Christian is because nobody knows what it means. There's no definition for it. Nowhere in the Bible... Is being a Christian defined in any way at all? In fact, what we discovered week number one is this word Christian is only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. And all three times it was used as a derogatory term, a slur given to people that follow Jesus. Where in fact, the people that follow Jesus would never, ever, ever, ever call themselves a Christian. Jesus referred to his followers by a much different term and his his followers called themselves different something else they called themselves a disciple And the reason that's so challenging to us today is because Jesus narrowly defined what it means to be a disciple. Like being a Christian, anybody can be a Christian because we don't know what it means. You can do anything you want as a Christian. In other words, you can live however you want. You can sleep around and do drugs and steal from people and blow up abortion clinics. You can do anything you want as a Christian. And nobody has any grounds to tell you you can't do that because it's not defined what it means. But if you want to be a disciple, Jesus narrowly defines what it means to be a disciple. One of the key characteristics, he said, by this, everybody in the world is going to know whether or not you're one of mine, whether you're my disciple, your love for one another. And then he clarified it. And he said, I, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the way your parents loved you. And that may be wonderful or the way you, you're currently loving your husband or wife. And that may be great. But he's saying, I want you to love each other the way I loved you. And what we saw in our last message was the way Jesus loved was messy sometimes. It was inconsistent at times, at times it appeared unfair. At times the way Jesus loved people just left us totally confused. And I thought, what what kind of coincidental timing that we're in this series and we're right at the two weeks dealing with the tension of of the way Jesus loved right in the middle of the Supreme Court ruling on marriage. And I thought the timing could not have been better for us to kind of understand these concepts of how we're supposed to love the way Jesus loved, and right now, and in fact, this this fall, I'm doing a message. We have the series coming up called "You Asked for It" because you literally asked for it on Easter Sunday. You filled out those comment cards of what do I want to know? And one of the top topics that you wrote down is is how do we make sense, or what is our approach, or what is our stance to the entire LGBT movement in America? Like, how do we respond as Christians, where you know we're not judgmental, we're not hateful, but we're not also compromising our belief? Like, what do we do? How do we We make sense of all of this. Well, most of it we we have addressed in this series, but I'm going to take one Sunday during that series and really just clearly spell out how we can be people who don't compromise what we believe, but at the same time don't condemn people. You know, where we can be people of grace and truth at the same time and, and kind of clearly spell out what is our stance, what, uh, what is our opinion, what is our view, and it's all biblical, so this would be a great week. But last, last message, John kind of brought us into this, this this message of how did Jesus love? What did it look like? And John said the Word became flesh, and that's just a fancy way of saying Jesus became a human being. Like the Word represents Jesus, became flesh, simply means he became a human being, and made his dwelling among us. Now this word us is not universal us. It's not like us who are here today. John literally means us, meaning him and his guys. Like this happened to us. Happened to us, first century, not you know universal for, for all people, but Jesus came and hung out with us. And we, again, this is not universal. This is not we who are here today. This is he, we, John and his guys. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And he says all that because he, he wants to explain, you know, living with Jesus, watching Jesus. I'm going to give you the best description I can for the way Jesus loved people. to How he dealt with some of these intricate situations and the complexities of life. The best way I can put it, John says, is Jesus was 100% full of both grace and truth. It's the best way. Grace. In truth, you know, grace says, you're going to be okay. Truth says, no, you're broken. Grace says, it's all going to be all right. Truth says, no, there's going to be some consequences. And see, here's the problem. If you're just going to be a a, a grace person, you're going to miss something. And if you're just going to be a truth person, you're going to miss something. Some of you grew up in homes that were like overboard on grace and didn't really have a whole lot of truth. And it explains some of the issues that you have today, like why your clothes don't always match and things like that. Some of you grew up in homes that were like overboard on truth and didn't have enough grace. And so it kind of explains some of the obsessive, compulsive issues that you struggle with and deal with. See, in Jesus, there wasn't a balance of grace and truth. Jesus wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100% grace and 100% truth 100% of the time and in every situation and in every encounter. So if we're just grace, there's going to be something missing. And if we're just truth, there's going to be something missing. And if you go to a grace church, there's going to be something missing. And if you go to a truth church, there's going to be something missing. John is basically saying, listen, if we as Jesus' followers are going to get this right, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to figure out this one thing. As his body, as his followers, we should embody grace and truth. Like we need to have massive doses of each of these in our life at the same time. In the last message, we kind of looked at different ways uh, of Jesus illustrating this in different relationships and different encounters and experiences that he had. And again, we we realized it was messy, it was inconsistent, it was confusing sometimes. What I want to do today is I want to bring you to a place in Scripture where Jesus actually taught this truth very clearly. He illustrated this truth and kind of showed us what this actually looked like. And one of the things about Jesus' teaching, for those of you that... Consider yourself a Bible scholar, someone that, that studies the Bible more than the average follower. One of the problems that we have is we don't always look at Jesus as a real theologian. We kind of look at Paul as the theologian. You know, the book of Hebrews and Corinthians. That's theology. Jesus more just told stories. And this word theology simply means study of God. The word ology means study of, like biology or geology. The word theo or theos in the Greek means God. So it simply means study of God. And... What you'll discover in Jesus' teaching and his stories is some of the richest, most meaningful theology, the most meaningful study of his father that you'll get anywhere else in scripture. But it takes understanding some of the context and the culture to really dig it out and pull it out. And so what makes the story we're going to look at today so significant to us is because of the audience Jesus was speaking to. See, Jesus found himself surrounded by two totally different groups of people. Jesus had one group of people that were in the audience during this story who were considered the bad people. They were the ones who felt alienated from God, like God would never approve of them. And then the other group of people that were in the audience during this story were the quote-unquote good people. They were the ones that felt like they were so good that God had already approved of them. And Jesus looks at both groups of people and he realizes that they're both wrong. The good people are wrong and the bad people are wrong. They're both missing it. And because Jesus is the master teacher, he decides to not address the specific issue because if he, if he hits the issue head on, nobody's going to believe him. Nobody's going to get it. It's, it's going to go Clearly over their head. So instead of driving home this very emotional, this very theological, this very, this very personal issue where one group of people is going to feel alienated from God if he hits it head on. And the other group of people is going to feel totally dissed by Jesus. He tackles this very difficult, thorny subject in the way of, of what, what does God look like? And how does the, this whole issue of God being a God of grace and truth, how does that work in the real world? Like, how does that work in my life today? What does that look like? What does that mean? And so Jesus did what he always did, and he, and he, and he approached it in such a way that he literally took the breath away. Like, like he left them gasping for breath. He, he, he left them in awe of this beautiful, beautiful truth that he describes. And I want you to listen to how this whole thing got started. It says here in Luke chapter 15, we're going to be studying. up at the whole chapter in your notes today. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's huge to me. I mean, if we just stop for a moment and meditated on these two words, gathering around, Like These two groups of people were gathering around Jesus. Now, the tax collectors were a group of people in this culture that were so hated. They were considered traitors. They were were Jewish people who were considered traitors by the Jews because their job was to collect taxes from other Jews for the Roman government. And as long as they gave Rome whatever Rome wanted... They could take as much money as they wanted from people. So if you owed Rome $100, they could tell you, you owe $500, and they could keep the other $400, and they would extort people, and they would rob people, and they were absolutely hated. And if you didn't pay, you went to prison. And so this group of people was so hated. And in fact, they were absolutely so hated that the authors of the Bible, Luke, didn't even want to offend the sinners by lumping them in the same group. Like all throughout the scripture, you see tax collectors and sinners. They didn't want to offend the sinner, the average sinner, by putting the tax collectors in the same group because they were just hated so much worse than the average sinner. So you got the tax collectors who are the most hated group of people. Then you had everyone else, everyone who just knew that God wouldn't approve of them. They, they knew because of their lifestyle, their behavior, their occupation, whatever, that God wouldn't accept them and, and God didn't like them. So get the picture. You have the worst of the worst people in first century society gathering around to listen to Jesus. So if Jesus was the pastor of the church here and he was preaching on Sunday and you showed up to church five minutes late, by the time you got here, the entire front section of our church would be jam-packed full of the absolute worst people in our society. I mean, you'd have the, the pimps and the drug dealers and, and, and just, you know, the, the people who just privately just a mess and the child pornographers and, and everything. And all these people gathering, I mean, the worst of the worst, gathering around to listen To Jesus. And that's so significant to me because that doesn't describe the way most of our churches look today, does it? But it absolutely should. And if we'll learn to get this right... This is what our churches will look like again. So let me now introduce you to the second group of people that were gathered around Jesus. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They, they, They muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. He welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Now, now this is a very intimate thing. Like, they didn't have restaurants in this time period. You didn't go out to dinner with with people you, you casually knew. To eat with somebody, you had to invite them into your home. It was a very intimate, intimate thing. And so the Pharisees and these teachers of the law, what they couldn't understand is they couldn't figure out why people who were absolutely nothing like Jesus at all liked Jesus. And they couldn't figure out why Jesus, who seemed to be nothing like them at all, seemed to like them. And what was even more perplexing to these Pharisees and teachers of the law was the fact that Jesus actually had more in common with them. The way he lived his life and what he believed and his doctrine and theology, he actually had more in common with this group of people than he had with the other group of people. And they couldn't understand why the other people were so attracted to him. And so their question was, does he condone their behavior? I mean, have you ever heard Jesus condemn them? Like, what is it about Jesus? Does he condone their behavior? They're, they're gathering to him. They're attracted to him. He's got to be compromising something for all these people to be attracted to him. And here's the tension that you see in Jesus. This is what we talked about in the last message. Jesus created this, this tension of this grace and this truth that was in full operation in every situation, in every encounter. And it was messy and it was confusing and it left people, you know, just it felt unfair at times. And because, again, Jesus is the master teacher, he doesn't directly address the issue that he wants to address, which is how does God view sin And he doesn't address the issue of how God views sinners, even though that's what he really wants to talk about. What Jesus does is he begins with the subject that both groups of people would agree upon. He he takes this subject where the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and teachers of law would all come into agreement on, because he's the master communicator, and he starts talking about sheep. Because they were all agriculturalists and they would have understood this illustration. And this is what a parable is. He begins this parable or a story. And for those of you that are new to our church or new to Christianity, a parable is something untrue used to illustrate something that is true. Jesus spoke in parables because he dealt with some very emotional subject matter. He dealt with some very difficult topics. And, and oftentimes if he just came out and said what he wanted to say, people would be shocked. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't believe it. So he used parables, these the stories that he made up, stories that were completely untrue to illustrate truth that is absolutely true. And so he starts with this topic and he, and he begins by getting everybody on the same page by asking them a question that he knew everybody in the audience, both groups of people, would have the same answer to. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. See, he starts with the common emotion. Everybody's lost something. Everybody knows what it feels like to lose something that matters to you, to lose something that has value. So he begins with this common emotion that both groups of people would feel. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And for the first time in their life, the the Pharisees and the sinners and tax collectors all nod in agreement. They all have the same answer. This makes me a little nervous, but yes, that's exactly what I would do. They would all do the same thing. And then he goes on, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls all of his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, celebrate. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, in the same way that you would call your friends and say, hey, I found what I was looking for. I'm so happy. I'm so relieved. I lost it. It was gone. I found it. In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then Jesus reaches out to the women in the audience. There in your notes, he says, suppose one of you women has a coin that's very, very precious a coin that matters to you a lot, maybe it's part of a larger set, and you lose that coin, wouldn't you frantically sweep your entire house until you find it? You'd rearrange all the furniture, you'd sweep... And all the women in the audience, again, nervously all look at each other and they all nod their head, yes, yes, that's exactly what we would do. I can't believe I'm agreeing with that group of people over there, but yes, you know, we're in agreement. We'd all do the same thing. And the husband's nod, yes, that's exactly what she would do because she'd call me home work from uh, home early from work and I'd have to move all the furniture and help her find the coin. And we're not going to bed until we find that coin. And everybody is in agreement. Why? Because when you lose something precious, when you lose something that matters to you, it it grabs hold of your attention. You're always more passionate about what is lost than you are about what isn't lost. And so everybody in the audience, which which is really strange, is in agreement about this thing. And then he, Jesus kind of slips in. That's what my father's like. You know, my dad is more excited about one lost sinner returning to him than he is about 99 that never got lost. And before they had a chance to kind of put all together what he was trying to communicate and what he he was doing, he dives into the most famous part of the story. And he says to the, to these two groups of people who are sitting there, there was a guy, he had two sons and Jesus understood birth order long before the psychologists had it figured out. Jesus said, the, the older son or the firstborn, he was your classic behavior. How many firstborns do we have here today? He said, the secondborn, the younger son, he was your classic misbehavior. And because this is a parable, because it, you know, it's an untrue story Jesus used to teach. Some of you guys are laughing. It was too close to home there. Jesus takes this story and he drives it to this ridiculous extreme that would have left all of them perplexed and shocked. And he says, this younger son comes to the father and says, dad, give me my inheritance. And again, we don't fully understand the depth of that in our culture because we don't have context for it. So let me try to illustrate the best I can what this son was actually doing. The son, in essence, came to his dad and said, dad, I wish you were dead. I don't love you. I don't care anything about you. I just want your stuff. But you just won't die. Dad, would you do me a favor, and would you just pretend that you're dead and give me what's mine so that I can leave and never have to see you again? That's, in essence, what he was asking his father. And in this Middle Eastern culture, the father would have been expected by the community to drive this son physically and violently out of the home. To disown him and never have anything to do with him again. And what Jesus does with this parable is so shocking and radical. Jesus basically says, everything you think about my father is completely wrong. I'm going to paint a picture of my father that this world has never seen before. Like You have an idea of what my dad is like. You couldn't be further from the truth. I'm going to give you an illustration. And, And so Jesus in the story, because it's a parable and he's making up, the father does it. The father, you know, he didn't have a bank and cash, so the father begins to sell off cattle and sell off real estate and sell off, literally liquidate what he's worked for his entire life, gives it to his son, and his son splits town. And everybody in the audience is equally offended. Everybody's shocked. Everybody's outraged. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're they're outraged. How dare a son ever treat a father like that? The tax collectors and sinners, they feel the same way. How dare this child ever treat a father that way? I mean, there's just outrage in the audience. So the son goes to a foreign country, buys into a lifestyle he can't afford for very long. You know, the, the the Greek word for it could mean lavish, could be wild, could be sinful, you know, make it whatever you want. But he buys into this lifestyle. It runs out way too soon, much sooner than he expected. And he finds himself in a very difficult situation. And the entire audience is absolutely livid and angry. This boy wasted everything his father worked his entire life for. His father sweat, blood, and tears. And he goes out and blows it in a very short time span. How dare he? And then it gets worse. There's a famine in the land and the boy finds himself unemployed. He finds himself without any money. He finds himself starving. And the only job he can find as a young Jewish boy is to feed pigs. And at this point, everyone in the audience erupts inside and says, yes, he's finally getting what he deserves. I mean, the tax collectors are feeling that way. The, the, the Pharisees are feeling that way. Jesus drives this story to this ultimate extreme, this Jewish boy feeding pigs. And if Jesus would have stopped the story right there, it would have been a great story. They would have loved they, Every single man in that room would have went home and told the story around the dinner table that night. Kids, let me tell you a story. And I'm going to tell you what happens to kids that don't honor their father. been a great story. But it doesn't stop there. When he, the younger brother, came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned. I'm not a mistaker. I'm a sinner. I failed. What I did was horrible and terrible. I sinned against heaven and I sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He knew that his dad treated his servants better than his boss was treating him. So he got up and he went to his father. And everyone thought, this is is where it's going to get good. I didn't know where Jesus was going a minute ago, but it's going to get good because this boy is going to get what he deserves. Because everybody in the audience, they knew exactly what the son deserved because they knew what they would do if it was their son. And Jesus, who's making up this story to make a very emotional point that nobody would have believed if he just started with it in the first place, says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with, and if Jesus would have stopped to the audience and said, now you fill in the blank. Everybody in the audience would have said, anger. Anger. Because how dare that son take advantage of his father? How dare he waste everything his father worked his entire life for? And there's only one logical thing for the father to be filled with, and that's righteous indignation and that's righteous anger. Because they all had this idea of what they thought God was like. He was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And now everybody in the audience is totally confused. I mean, they're, they're confused because they knew every time Jesus told one of these parables, somebody in the story represents God and somebody in the story represents them and, 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 they, and they thought they had it figured out. Like the father definitely represents God and now they don't really know because you know, they all knew what the kid deserved because they all knew what God was like, they thought. And Jesus tells this story and basically says, everything you think you know about my dad is wrong. I'm gonna paint a picture of who my father is. See, the tax collectors and the sinners, they live their life thinking that if there is a God, I got to live it up now because judgment's going to come one day. So I need to make the most of now. And the Pharisees thought we deserve the good that's coming to us. And they deserve the bad that's going to them. And the father runs to the son, embraces him, throws his arms around this kid that smells, that stinks, that humiliated him, that did everything possible to publicly disgrace him. And the father embraces him. And now everybody is confused. I mean, can you feel the tension in the room? The tax collectors are confused. The Pharisees are confused. They have no idea what's going on because that's what Jesus did. He's the embodiment of grace and truth, and that creates this incredible tension. And so the son starts the the speech that he rehearsed the whole way home. He said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And nobody argues, because that's absolutely true. But the father said to his servants, Quick! And that word bothers me. It, It bothers me because, you know, we need to give it some time. We need to see if this kid is sincere first. You know, we need to make sure it's not some like prison conversion where he's just, you know, at the bottom and he he wants to turn things around. Like, he's got to work for it. Like, don't tell mom. We don't want mom to know because she's going to get all Gracie about it. Let's just kind of put him out in the shed and let's see if this is true and legitimate. But the father's like, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In other words, this is my son. And bring the fattened calf. You know, the calf that we've been saving up all year, the one we're fattening. Like if you would have asked the family, what are you fattening the calf for? Everyone in the family would have said this because they all had this event in mind. Maybe it was the older son's wedding for whatever it was, but they're fatting up the calf for something specific. And now the father spontaneously kills it and says, let's have a feast and celebrate. And, and, and now Jesus has messed all of us up. And everyone in the audience is confused because that's what Jesus did. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, this is where the story ends. But at the beginning of the story, remember it said the father had how many sons? Two. And so the older son who never disobeyed, the older son who never misbehaved, the older son who's been like this perfect child his whole life, he's out in the fields faithfully working for the father, and he starts hearing music. And then he looks back at the house, and there's a party and a celebration. All of a sudden, somebody's pulling a cart, and there's the calf that we're fattening dead. Dad is going to kill him. Who killed the fattened calf? And, And he sees all this going on, and... At this point in the story, everybody in the audience, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the sinners, they all identify with the older brother. They're all feeling the older brother's pain. Because if my younger brother did to my dad what this kid did to his father, I would feel the same way. So Jesus puts the word in their mouth. The older brother became angry. Angry. And he refused to go in. Let me just take you on a side note. Ever met any angry Christians? Just angry. Have you ever, ever turned on the television? There's this angry preacher. Ever grew up with an angry pastor, an angry nun? I mean, did you leave church because you were just tired of being around these angry, disputatious Christians? I mean, why are they against everything? So let's just review quickly. The dad decides to throw a party and celebrate. They kill the fattened calf. They've been saving all year. The older, the, 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 the younger son doesn't feel like going to the party because he doesn't feel like he deserves to be there. The older son agrees and says, well, he definitely doesn't deserve to be there. And the dad just wants to celebrate. One son, I don't deserve it. The other son, he's right. He doesn't deserve it. And if he's there, I'm not going. And the other son's like, I don't want to go because I don't deserve being there. And the audience is completely confused. Because they didn't understand how God the Father views sin and how God the Father views sinners. They're thinking God's this cop in the sky waiting to catch them doing something wrong so he can release wrath on them. And so instead of just saying it, Jesus knew that the audience would never believe it. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. I love the fact that the father in the story reaches out to both sons. He he embraces both sons. He goes to both sons. And then the older son had a speech. You know, the younger son had a speech. The older son had a speech. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never once disobeyed your orders. Can I mess with you just a little bit today? Do you know why you're an angry Christian? you know why you're, you're an angry Christian? Because you think you deserve something that God might give somebody else or, or has given somebody else. See, so you think you've been so faithful and you've been so obedient. And the holier you get, the angrier you become. Why? Because you don't understand grace and truth. See, when you hear about something good happening to something bad, you just rejoice in the fact that there's hell. Like, one day they're going to get what they deserve. Like you celebrate what goes around, comes around. And and your dream is for the parable to end like this. And he spent the rest of his life feeding pigs. The end. (laughs) You're angry and you're self-righteous. You're not a good follower of Jesus, let me tell you. You might be a good Christian. And listen, you can go start a whole political party around that type of Christianity. You can go boycott things and, and picket and signs and everything else. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered dad, I don't know, but if you know this, but he he blew it all. You worked your entire life, father. And he blew it all. And dad, I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want mom to find out, but he blew it on prostitutes, dad. This son of yours. And now you're going to kill the fattened calf for him? Dad, I'm mad. I'm angry. This is unfair. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Wait a second, dad. Dad, did you just say and change the subject on me? I mean, did you hear my speech at all? Did you feel the inequity? Did you see how unfair this is? Son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he was dead to us. We didn't know where he was, and he's now alive again. He was lost, and he's found. So, son, I need you to come to the party with me, not because your brother deserves a party. It was never about his performance in the first place. I mean, you two are just alike. I mean, you're hung up on his performance. He's hung up on his performance. Go talk to your brother. See, let me give you the root or the heart of Christianity. God could not love you more. Some of you need to hear that statement today because you're working so hard because you think you've got to somehow earn extra credit with God. Like if you can pray more, read more, do more. That, that, that like, you know, somehow God loves you less than everyone else because maybe you struggle or maybe you have issues or maybe you have a past or maybe you've got some baggage. You need to understand today, God can't love you any more than he loves you right now, no matter how hard you work or what you do. And the same is also true. Nothing you do will ever cause him to love you less. That's the heart of Christianity. God can't love you anymore. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to make him love you any less. In other words, God never gets mad at lost things. You don't get mad at your phone when you lose your phone. I mean, you might get mad at yourself, but you don't get mad at the phone. Where does this anger come from? Why do we get mad at lost things? It comes from this self-righteousness. It comes from a place where where I have been faithful and I have been obedient. I've been in church and I, 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 I. And God says, that's awesome. It's wonderful. Somebody wrote all that down, but it's not the point. The issue is, are you with me? So, so here's the goal as followers. Here, here's the goal as disciples. I want us to get to the place where sin will break our hearts. Sin will break our hearts. And repentance will stir our hearts. It will move us when we see true repentance. In other words, when someone is in sin, or when someone we knew moves in sin, or, or better yet, when an entire segment of society seems to embrace sin, let's get to a place where we don't get angry anymore. Let's get to a place where it breaks our heart. And if it doesn't break your heart, you've got work to do. And I think we had a great litmus test last week to see where we're at with the Supreme Court ruling. Did you get angry or did it break your heart? And if it broke your heart, because I know I've heard some of you already told me, well, it breaks my heart. But let's be very honest. It's not breaking your heart because people are living in sin. It's breaking your heart because you think you're losing the America you love. And that's anger. That means you're the older brother and you're going to have to go deal with that. Let's be honest. Does it break your heart? Because you know that sin hurts people and people who live in sin are going to pay price and and there's consequences and there's baggage and emotional damage that comes. Or does it break your heart because you think you're losing the America you love? Let's be very, very honest. God couldn't love you any more than he does right now, and he couldn't love you any less. And that's true for every human being on planet Earth. So let's be a church that celebrates when people come home. Jesus is painting this picture of his father, and he says, listen, my dad, when he throws a party, he, he never throws parties for people who've been faithful and consistent and obedient. Like, we'll do that for you with our dream team party, but that's not the way God does it. God celebrates when the lost come home. And if that bothers you, if that, if that makes you a little bit mad, then you need to go home and wrestle with that and deal with that. We need to become comfortable carrying this tension of grace and truth. So as we close quickly, let me just talk to the prodigal that's here today. Those of you who, you know, you feel like the younger brother. You feel like the prodigal. You feel like you're just away from God. You're living in sin, and sin is the fancy Bible word that simply means to miss the mark. It means you're empty. It means you're you're living a life you weren't created to live. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're you're struggling right now. You're struggling with pornography, you're struggling with drugs, you're struggling with maybe you're struggling with emptiness. Maybe you don't even know what you're struggling with because you don't even know what to believe, and you're just you're just lost. And just understand one thing about us as followers of Jesus. The reason we hate sin is because sin has a gotcha. We don't hate sin because it's fun to hate sin. We hate sin because we know the consequences of it. We hate sin because at some point it's going to go bad and it's going to leave you scarred. And it's going to leave you hurt. And we've all been there. See, the reason we hate it is because we've experienced what you're living in right now. We, we were there at one point. Living separated from God. Living empty. Living broken. And you need to hear something loud and clear because for many years, religion got the message wrong. God is not mad at you. God's not waiting you know, for you to come back home so he can beat you up and judge you for, for your sin. In fact, God's heartbroken for you because he sees the pain that you're living in or he sees the pain that you're gonna be living in because of the choices you're making right now because sin has a gotcha. And when you come home, let me be clear, we're not going to hold it against you. We we as a church are not going to hold your past against you. We're not going to be the older brother. It's not who we are. We want to be a church that represents the Father and celebrate. To put it in Jesus' terms, we had to celebrate and be glad. Like we celebrate when people come home. We celebrate that. So if you're tired of just being dead inside and just trying to drink it away and medicate it away and whatever you do to kind of like numb it, I pray that you'll come home today. I I hope that God will stomp out all of your unrighteousness simply because unrighteousness hurts. Unrighteousness hurts. And I also pray that as a church, God will stomp out all of our self-righteousness that we struggle with as a church family. Would you close your eyes for just a second? As we leave today, I don't think I can make it any more clear. So I just want to leave and give you an opportunity to make a very simple decision to come back home to Jesus. It's a very, very simple decision. It's a simple prayer that you can pray in your heart of just coming back home. And he's ready to welcome you and embrace you. And I pray today that you'll have the image of the Father that Jesus painted for us this morning. So many of us have had such warped, perverted images of God, like God's mad at me and God doesn't like me and God's ashamed of me and God's embarrassed of me. And, and, you know, he keeps looking at me like, why can't you get your act together? That's not God. Jesus painted us a picture today that says, if you'll just take one step towards him, he'll come running to you and he'll embrace you and he loves you and he wants to be your father and accept you and bring you home. But you've got to make that decision. And so I want to help you with that decision today by saying a prayer with you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to come down to the front. You don't even have to pray this out loud today. You can just say this in your heart. And God will hear, and he'll respond to you today. So if you feel like the prodigal, maybe there was a time when you felt close to God, but today you're away from him, and you need to come back home. Or maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never made a decision to be part of his family. And and today's the first time you're ever gonna make that decision. Either way, I wanna pray with you. So so that I know who I'm praying with, with every eye closed, no one looking around out of respect, would you just slip up your hand and say, I'm gonna join you in that prayer today. Just right now, thank thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate those hands. The prayer is very simple. Just in your heart, say, Jesus, I'm coming home. Jesus, I'm coming home. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Jesus, my sin separated me from having a relationship with you and your Father. Will you forgive me? And then the last thing I want you to pray is say, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Now, let me pray for you. Father, I pray right now that they will feel your embrace today. That in this story, the way the father ran to the son and embraced him, that they will feel that spiritually today. They will feel that they are your sons and daughters, that you are welcoming them home. They don't have to earn their way back into the family, but you are gladly receiving them and welcoming them home. In the name of Jesus. Listen, if you prayed with me today, I wanna encourage you to take one more step on your connection card. There's two boxes. One says, I made a decision to follow Christ. The other says, I renewed that commitment to follow Christ. Whatever decision you made, check the box that applies to you so that we can be praying for you. You can drop it off on your way out. We'll be praying for you. We'll we'll be believing God's best for you. And then the only thing we'll do, just to make it clear, we have our hassle-free guarantee is we'll send you an email that gives you the next steps of what it means to follow him. Would you stand with me as we close? Father, I pray blessing over every person here. God, let this be a church that represents the father in the story. Let us never be a church that that views you like the younger brother as as somebody that we've got to be afraid of or views you as the older brother, this vindictive, self-righteous God. But let us represent your heart well into this community. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have a great week, everybody.
1: It's